All right, we've got one announcement tonight. Uh, this, well, actually two. Don't forget that this Sunday is Resurrection Sunday. This is a, an eventful week. Can anybody tell me what today is? Passover began last night at sundown. No, not yet. Lexington and Concord. This is the anniversary of the Battle of Lexington and Concord. What? That's right. Thursday is San Jacinto Day. Friday's Good Friday. Sunday's Resurrection Day. It's an eventful week. If I was going to say something historical about everything, we wouldn't get into the Scripture. Well, it used to be. Well, it used to be one day before school holiday, back before... You know, back in the good old days when we used to get San Jacinto Day off, when people cared about liberty, oh, well, that's, a, that's another subject. Uh, it's a good subject since Passover was yesterday and Passover is about liberty, and I'll say a couple of things about that as we go through um, some things tonight. So um, this is an eventful week. The other uh, important thing is that we are on the very edge of shifting our technology to uh, a new uh, technology for live streaming. They just got everything working about one minute before class started, tested it, everything works fine, but it's too early to get, I mean, it's too late to get the links up and everything for uh, everybody who's live streaming. So especially those who live stream on a regular basis, by tomorrow sometime, those links will be up on the Internet, and you can go to the deanbible.org homepage and the instructions will be there in the new link. All that information will be there, and that will be the basis for streaming on Thursday night. So uh, if uh, all that information is out there, so if you know anybody who may not be aware of that we're changing this, let them know. Are they changing the server, Bruce? Yes. That's effective Thursday also? That's effective Thursday? Uh, yes. Okay. One of the problems we've had is that the server that we've been using has been located in Canada, and the signal is great until it crosses the Canadian border, and then it's been degrading tremendously. And so for that reason, there's been a lot of choppiness, breaking up, loss of signal, people getting kicked offline. That's been going on. So this, they've shifted the server now to Dallas. So since we don't have to cross any international borders, we should be okay. We're staying in Texas. That's what I mean by international borders. We're not crossing. We're not crossing the Red River or the Sabine or the Rio Grande. We're keeping things in the Republic of Texas, so everything should run smoothly. All right. I'll show young man cleanse his way by taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. So before we get started, let's have a few moments of silent prayer so we can all make sure we are spiritually prepared to study the word this evening and to focus on the word, and then uh, I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, this time as we remember two significant historical events, one, the Passover, which purchased the freedom of Israel, the Israelites from their slavery in Egypt, and also the anniversary of the Battle of Lexington and Concord, two great events that showed that, that freedom is not free. Freedom is won through the shedding of blood, and in the case of Passover, it was the shedding of the blood of the Lamb that foreshadowed the shedding of the blood of the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world so that we could have real freedom, spiritual freedom. And then the shedding of blood at the battles of Lexington and Concord where it, we realize that political freedom can only be gained and maintained by those who are willing to make the ultimate sacrifice for our freedom. Father, we continue to pray for those who are serving our nation 
in the armed forces fighting in Afghanistan or in Iraq or serving in um, Libya or any other uh, engagement that's going on. We pray for their safety. We pray for those who are believers in Jesus Christ that they might be a faithful witness uh, to him and to the truth of your word uh, as they serve our nation. And, Father, we pray that as we study your word this evening that we might come to a greater understanding of your plans and purposes and how you work in human history and that we may gain a greater realization that of how we fit within that pl- your plan and purpose. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, we are in Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, let's turn to Acts 2.22 just to pick up our context. Acts 2.22, this is an analysis now of Peter's message on the day of Pentecost. And he addresses the men of Israel, as I pointed out last time. The focal point here is on the leadership in Israel, and that was among the men. Men were seen as the leader in the family, and so this is specifically addressed to the uh, male leadership, the males who were there in the temple precinct uh, for the day of Pentecost. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to, uh, to you by miracles, wonders, and signs. Now, I pointed out last time that these were the prophetic credentials that the Old Testament prophets said would accompany the Messiah. One of the things that we see in Peter's message here is that he is showing again how the life of Jesus of Nazareth uh, fulfilled Old Testament prophecies, that there were over 300 prophecies in the Old Testament related to what would happen when the Messiah came. They're related to two different aspects of the Messiah's ministry. The first was that the Messiah would come and he would suffer and die. That is clear from passages such as Isaiah chapter 53, which is one of the most uh, significant. Many other passages in Isaiah emphasize that as well, that the Messiah would come, but he would come and he would be rejected. He would be considered a man of shame and that he would be uh, put to death. Then there are a, a second group of passages that focus on the glorious reign of the Messiah, that he would come to rule and reign over over Israel. And unfortunately, what happened when Jesus came the first time is that the, the, because Israel had been under the uh, heel of the tyranny of Rome for a uh, number of decades, that they were looking for a deliverer to come and free them politically not recognizing that political freedom isn't real freedom if you don't have spiritual freedom. If there's not freedom in the soul, then there's not real freedom. And even when there is freedom in the soul, if there's no capacity for understanding that freedom, then what happens is people just want to re-enslave themselves uh, and sell out responsibility for the sake of security, which is what happened with the Exodus generation. As they got out into the wilderness after the uh, deliverance through from, from Egypt, the crossing of the Red Sea, the deliverance is marked by the observance of Passover every year, which uh, just began uh, last evening. Uh, and many uh, Jewish families uh, observe Passover both the first night and second night. So tonight many uh, Jewish families are also observing uh, Seder dinner. That This looks back, back to how God delivered the Israelites from slavery in Egypt, and yet that generation, because they had been brought up with this this security, this false security actually that occurs when the government takes care of everything, and that when you had this circumstance in Egypt, that once they got out into the wilderness, and there they were on their own, uh, on their own recognizance, they had to take care of themselves. They had to provide for themselves by trusting in God, of course. But they were responsible for their own, uh, their own care. They fell apart, and whenever when adversity came, rather than seeking to overcome and to face the challenge by 
uh, trusting in God. They just wanted to go back to Egypt, and they lusted after the leeks and the garlics, as the phrase goes, the leeks and the garlics uh, of, of uh, going back to Egypt. Now, one thing I just recently learned, speaking of the Passover and freedom, is that um, uh, apparently there is a the, uh, the original uncut version of the Ten Commandments starts in a way that I've never seen before. Anybody here? If I won't have anybody raise their hand and embarrass themselves, if anybody saw it when it first came out in the original uncut version, uh, actually um, Cecil B. DeMille came out at the beginning wearing a suit up in the front of the, front of the screen, and we usually hear just hear his voice. But what he said in that introduction we don't hear anymore, but he pointed out that one of the primary lessons uh, in the Exodus story is the uh, conflict between the rule of law and the rule of a man, and that uh, and he points this out, and that in the Exodus event you see the superiority of the rule of law, which comes from God, over the rule of man, which was embodied in the claim of deity by the human government of Pharaoh. And I thought I really would like to get a copy of that and understand and hear that original introduction. Because what's embedded within the Exodus event itself is the, are the principles for real freedom. And real freedom comes through uh, being under the authority of God and under the law of God in that, in a generic sense, not the Mosaic law, but in a broader sense of the law of God and being in right relationship to God. Spiritual freedom precedes Political freedom and spiritual freedom is what gives people the capacity to appreciate political freedom and individual responsibility. Individual responsibility being the first divine institution established by God before sin was ever uh, on the planet, before there was there was the fall of Adam, before there was the disobedience to Adam. And in personal responsibility, we see man's responsibility and accountability. Uh, to God, that God specifically has a plan. So in the Exodus event, there's that emphasis on personal responsibility. Each individual is responsible and accountable to God. And that is what Peter is emphasizing here when he addresses the men of Israel. And he emphasizes that Jesus of Nazareth was attested. I pointed out last time that that emphasized the fact that he had credentials and those credentials were his fulfillment of these Old Testament prophecies. And I pointed out a minute ago that there were over 300 Messianic prophecies in the Old Testament, over a 100 of which were fulfilled in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. Now, that's a mathematical impossibility. It's almost a mathematical impossibility for just 10 of those prophecies to come true in one person. The odds are, are astronomical. There was uh, uh, one uh, writer, Peter Stoner, a number of years ago wrote a, uh, an analysis of this and went through all the uh, probability calculations of just 10 of these prophecies coming true in one person. And he came to the conclusion, uh, I just remember his illustration, that it would be like filling the state of Texas up to a depth of four feet with silver dollars and marking one silver dollar with a little fingernail polish and tossing that out into the mix and churning the whole thing up and the chance of a blind man uh, picking that one marked silver dollar uh, was about equivalent to the chances of only ten of those prophecies coming true in one individual. But we have over a hundred that came true in Jesus of Nazareth. And so this is how Peter begins. And But I want you to notice, because I want to connect this to some things I've been saying on, uh, on in Romans 1 on Thursday night, we'll get into this a little more, is that he's addressing a Jewish audience here, a Jewish audience that is composed of people who understand who the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is, a Jewish audience that has a uh, has a familiarity with the Old Testament uh, prophecy, so they have a frame of reference to understand what he is talking about. It's not like Paul later on in Acts chapter 13, Acts chapter 17, when Paul is addressing a Gentile uh, a pagan audience that has no clue 
about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, had no clue about the Old Testament passage. So he understands his audience. He understands uh, to whom he is speaking. And so he is telling them that, that Jesus had credentials. His credentials fulfilled the prophecies of the Old Testament and that God is the one who performed this um, <clears throat> uh, through him. So he says, these signs, wonders, miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst. In other words, you are all witnesses of this. You know this. You know this is what happened. And then he goes on to say, uh, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified, and put to death. And so it's clear here that he is talking about the fact that in a physical sense, it was the Jewish people who brought Jesus up on charges and brought him to Pilate. But he's not saying it's only the Jewish people who are complicit here. If you look at Scripture, everybody's complicit in the death of Jesus. He's taken to the Roman authorities because only the Roman authorities could impose a capital punishment upon Jesus. And so it is the Roman authorities who find him guilty, even though there's no evidence of, of that. And this is why Pilate goes through the thing of washing his hands of guilt, trying to absolve himself of responsibility in making this uh, irresponsible decision that violated law. But that means that the Romans were guilty. But all humanity is guilty because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and because all have sinned, that there was a necessity for a plan of salvation, which included a, a sacrifice for sin. So he's delivered up by the purpose of God. So God is involved in providing a Savior. So God is responsible in one sense, in the sense of that he has the plan of salvation. And men are responsible. So you can't do what some people have done, which is to try to blame the Jews. This was the root of horrible, of centuries of horrible Christian anti-Semitism against uh, the Jewish people. And there was absolutely no basis for this in Scripture. And it's just what happens when people come along and they read one verse and they rip it out of context and go in another direction. Now, there's two key words here that I focused on last time, and just by way of review, I want to go over this again because this is so important. Hardly a week or a month goes by that I don't start getting uh, questions, emails from people who are want to know or understand issues related to this whole debate between uh, over Calvinism. And at the core of this are these two words that, were, that we looked at last time, herizo and uh, for, translated here, determined purpose, and prognosis for foreknowledge. So let's just review what I covered last time. Uh, first of all, there is the Calvinist claim that, uh, that these words indicate that God set up a, de a de series of decrees in eternity past, and that it is those decrees that flow first and foremost from his will that determines every event in human history. Now, I'm not doing an in-depth study of the whole issue between Calvinism and Arminianism, but I will point this out, and I'm not going to get sidetracked on it and defend it, but the, this whole idea of a divine decree comes straight out of five-point Calvinism. It doesn't come out of biblical exegesis. So just dismiss that from your thought. There is no biblical basis unless, you read, unless you're willing to read the entirety of Calvinism as a system into the text. There's no basis for this, period. Okay, back to our words. Horizo means simply to determine to a point and you have to look at the context, what is being determined, who is being determined, and to extrapolate from Acts 2.23, as I pointed out last time, anything related to individual salvation, that God is selecting certain individuals for salvation, and thus 
certain individuals or the rest of humanity to certain damnation is not can't be demonstrated from this context. This context can only demonstrate that God had a plan of salvation. He laid out that plan, and he oversaw the execution of that plan in relationship to Jesus Christ. So he's, this is simply saying that Christ was delivered by the set plan, by the uh, determined plan, by the intentional purpose of God. And then the second word is the word foreknowledge. Now, I didn't finish up the study last time. One of the things we have to do is connect these two words because in the Greek you have an interesting construction here where you have a, uh, a one article before the first, uh, this term uh, for determined purpose, and then you have a, in a participial form, then you have a uh, noun and a chi and another noun. And so what we have to answer this this question of, the relationship between these two particular uh, words. But on terms of the second word, foreknowledge, which is uh, prognosis or prognosco in the verb, what we have here is simply a word, as I pointed out last time, that emphasizes uh, prescience, which means to know something ahead of time. Now, I pointed out that in the Greek lexicon, uh, Bauer, Arndt, Gingrich, Danker. It says foreknowledge is one of the meanings, but and and um, predetermined. But it doesn't go any further than that. Doesn't define those things, and so that's important uh, to look at that. In fact, what you see, and I really address this to anybody who's tra- getting started with Greek or Hebrew or trying to look things up. Nowadays, people have t- access to so many tools via computer programs, but all the, many of these tools have weaknesses, and there are some significant weaknesses in Bauer, Arndt, and Gingrich where they theology causes them to bring certain meanings to words that can't be demonstrated on the basis of usage alone. Word usage is, all, uh, is uh, first and foremost. Uh, Acts 26.5 is one example of the normal use of this word where Paul says, they knew me from the first. In other words, they knew me beforehand. That is your normal meaning of the word. To indicate that choice or election is part of the meaning of the word goes far beyond any usage that we have. The primary normative meaning of prognosco. Gnosko is the verb to know ahead of time, pra meaning beforehand, Gnosko to know uh, simply gives us that meaning. So the Calvinist claim is that this gives us a sense of selection, that this is a synonym for the election process. They also base this on the Hebrew word yada, which is the basic normative Hebrew word for knowledge. And they claim that there is a pregnant sense of this term, there is a fuller sense of this term, that doesn't mean simply to know or to ascertain or to understand or to have cognizance about something, but it means to have, to choose to have an intimate relationship with someone. And so uh, they take, make this claim uh, that uh, there, it, it's really a selective love, and that is not demonstrable from the evidence that we see in uh, in the scriptures. Along with this, Calvinists also claim that, from a theological viewpoint, that God cannot really know what will take place beforehand unless God first determines what will take place. Now, that's critical. That is a foundational assumption. It's a really a philosophical conclusion that is brought to the text, and it governs their understanding of all of these words in this whole election foreknowledge uh, controversy. They claim that God can't really know what will take place unless he has already determined what will take place. So that means they put foreknowledge in front of omniscience. 
And last time I pointed out that omniscience precedes foreknowledge. They would put foreknowledge first because God has to, what they mean by foreknowledge is God determines beforehand what will happen. And then he knows all things. How can he know what he hasn't already determined? So what this actually does in terms of theology is it is it places uh, the priority on the divine will, on God's elective choice, on his decree as to what will take place and what won't take place before there is any certainty of knowledge. So for in Calvinism, God's will is the first thing. He chooses what will happen, and then you have foreknowledge, then you have omniscience. That's the order, uh, the logical order within their uh, within the Calvinist system. You have God's elective choice, then his determining foreknowledge, and then God's omniscience. So the, their basic claim asserts that God's knowledge, therefore, would be contingent or dependent upon his will. The will comes first. And that this implies that a future event cannot be certain in the mind of God without God first determining that it would happen. So the problem that we have with that is that it doesn't make um, it doesn't really allow for contingency. Let me give you two verses in Scripture that indicate that God knows contingent things. By contingent things, I think I mean things that didn't happen but could have happened. One is in Matthew eleven twenty three. Jesus is addressing the people in Capernaum who have rejected his. Uh, ministry, his messianic claim, and he says, and you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, why were they exalted to heaven? Because this was Jesus' hometown. So his very presence sanctified Capernaum. Uh, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to Hades, that is, place of death. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained, that is, Sodom would have remained until this day. So that clearly shows that in Christ's omniscience, he knows what would have happened under other conditions. So that means he knows contingencies. He knows not only what will happen, but what could have happened under any number of circumstances. He says the same kind of thing in Luke chapter 10, verse 13, and talking about a couple of other uh Towns very close to uh, Capernaum. Both, all of these are on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. Woe is always an announcement of a divine judgment. Woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. They would have repented, but they didn't. So this introduces a measure of contingency. Now, it raises a lot of other questions I'm not going to get into, but the point I want to make from those two verses is it shows that God has, an, has a knowledge of what would have happened under different circumstances. So there is a true, genuine um, contingency in the knowledge of God. Okay, the second thing that we learn here that, that in terms of the study last week, and I just barely touched on this, is that the Hebrew word for knowledge, yada, is used 944 times in the Old Testament. From a lexical viewpoint, that is a huge amount of data to work through. Okay, so 944 times. So it gives us a lot of information on what the word means, and its basic meaning is to know, to understand, to be cognizant of something, to be aware of something, to understand something. It's used in a context of a personal relationship, such as Abraham knew Sarah and she conceived, which indicates a more intimate knowledge. It's used in a context of a personal relationship about 90 times of those 944 times, so that's about 10%. Five of which, five of these 90 uses of of, uh, yada in a relational context are claimed to have the meaning of an intimate personal relationship involving a choice. But when you actually look at those five uses, there's not one of them that necessitates bringing the idea of choice or selection into the meaning. 
when you take the phrase, Adam knew Sarah and she conceived, to bring choice or selection into it is not what's in the context at all. That's just reading something into it that's not part of the part of the statement. Obviously, in the background somewhere, there is choice, but that's not part of the semantic value of the term in, ter- in, in terms of the main emphasis in that sentence. Third thing we observed was that the meaning of gnosko, which means knowledge, prognosko means knowledge ahead of time. Gnosko is used about 223 times in the, in the New Testament, every time with the meaning of knowledge, understanding, perceiving truth, something like that. But it never has a connotation of selection or election or choice. It's a fourth observation and knowing in the context of a personal relationship is present in uh, three passages, 1 Corinthians 8.3, Galatians 4.9, and 2 Timothy 2.19. But in none of those places can you read into it the idea of choice or election. So the conclusion is, number five, that prognosco has the idea of knowing something ahead of time, but it doesn't have the idea of selection or election. So foreknowledge is not a synonym for election. Yet that is how Calvinist theology takes it, makes it virtually a synonym for choice or selection ahead of time. Now, two key verses, one of which we looked at last time, one we did not get to last time, put foreknowledge before election. It's clear the Bible teaches election. Nobody should doubt that. Election is all through Scripture. But what do we mean by election? What is the basis for God's choice? When God is a subject to the verb, on what basis does he make this selection? That's the issue. Uh, Everyone believes in election one way or another, but it's on what basis do we have uh, this election or selection? So in 1 Peter 1-2, Peter mentions the elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. So the idea here is that election or the choice of God is according to, which indicates that some, that whatever is after the according to is prior to the meaning of, or prior to the act of election. So the election is dependent upon something prior, which is God's foreknowledge. That is his knowledge ahead of time. So God's choice, as I pointed out last time, is based on something. He's not just being an arbitrary and going eeny, meeny, miny, mo, and picking out some who are going to be elect and some who aren't without taking into account certain information within his knowledge. So I pointed these things out, which I'll review quickly. We're just using the whole square representing the character, I mean the omniscience of God. It's unending. I didn't want to make it finite by putting it in a circle. So we just imagine this is just a, a tan background that goes off into infinity. And I pointed out that God's knowledge is infinite. Now we have to really think about this. I think that in some of the things that I've read, I'm not sure theologians have fully thought through the implications of infinite knowledge. First of all, I say God knows all that can be known. It's an infinite knowledge. There's no, there's no limitation to it. He knows all the possibilities, and you can extrapolate that on into infinity. His knowledge never increases, diminishes, or changes. So his knowledge isn't like our knowledge. He knows everything, all of these contingencies, instantly, simultaneously, and and all in the same way. He knows all things immediately, directly, and intuitively, along with all their relations and causes. There's no temporal nature to divine knowledge. It's all eternally present to him. And then fourth, God's knowledge does not determine what will or will not be. His omniscience simply knows what will be, what could be, what all the possibilities. And then last, God's knowledge of what will actually happen is a subset of all that he knows. So I illustrate it this way. Divine knowledge of what will be is just a small amount of all the knowledge that God has. Putting it in a different way, 
I use this timeline across the horizontal timeline from eternity to eternity. God above the timeline, the two arrows going out to the left or right from God indicate his direct perception. He's above time. So he immediately perceives everything within all of creation. That's what is below the timeline. So he sees everything. So we can't talk about God's knowledge in terms of temporal qualities. He didn't know this before he knew that. He knew everything simultaneously and at one time. So I concluded God's knowledge includes all events, choices, actions, and thoughts, actual and potential. God's decision of what will be is usually presented as by the Calvinist as that God determines every detail of what will take place first and that he determines what will be, ba- what will be based on the decision of, um, or actually I misread that, uh, his decision what will be, what will be is usually presented as either A, he determines every detail of what will take place, or B, he determines what will be based on the decision of the create- creature. These are two uh, to two opposites, but we, there's a logical fallacy known as the law of the excluded middle. There aren't only two options. One option is that God determines everything down to the most minute thing in, in, in history, and the other is that, that God lets everything be contingent, which he's just reacting to everything creatures decide. It's neither one. God's sovereignty can function simultaneously with the allowance of a measure of freedom on the part of the creature. God can do that. That's why he's God. What happens in our finite minds is we we want to define causality from the creature to the creator in the same way that we see causality from creature to creature within the creation. So... When it comes to election, Scripture doesn't inform us why God chose Abraham to work through and say why he didn't choose Job, only that he did. But God had a reason to say God did it arbitrarily is absurd. He had a reason. We're just not told what that reason was. But that reason would have to be related to his knowledge. Otherwise, we end up with an irrational God. So we're left with only two options. Either he chose arbitrarily or he included within his choice, on the basis for his choice, all that he knew. Uh, But to include his omniscience in his decision-making does not make man's decisions, that should be decisions, not uh, an S instead of an A there. It's a typo. Decisions causative. And this is especially true of those decisions are non-meritorious. Okay, let me look at this one other passage here. Romans 8.28. Romans 8.28 says, And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. Now, it's important to recognize that that second phrase, to those who are called according to his purpose, as it's defined in the next couple of verses, means every believer. Okay, so this isn't setting up a category and saying that things only work together for good to those who only love God. It refers to every believer. Those who are the called according to his purpose defined in context is every believer. So we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. So what comes first? Foreknowledge or God's decision of predestination. We'll define predestination in just a second. But what we see here initially is that foreknowledge precedes predestination. Now, the word predestination in the Greek is praharizo. Now, I pointed out that the word that we have for God's intended purpose in Acts 2.23 is harizo. So praharizo is to intend something or to purpose something ahead of time, pra, beforehand. So we read here that foreknowledge comes first, and then he sets up a destination ahead of time. He sets up a purpose ahead of time. 
Now, it's important to understand this because in the text, what is, the pre, what is predestined? What is predestined is to be conformed to the image of his son, not to be justified. So we're predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Conforming us to the image of his son is the ultimate goal that God has in mind for every single believer. Whether you want to grow as a believer or not, God's predetermined destiny for you is that you be like Jesus Christ. That doesn't mean that your volition doesn't come into play. That doesn't mean that you can't become rebellious, can't be carnal, can choose to not go along with God's plan and say, I prefer to be disciplined by God on a daily basis than to follow God's plan of spiritual growth. But what this is saying is God's predetermined plan for the believer is to conform believers to the image of his son. That's all it's saying. It's not saying anything about choosing some to be justified or choosing some not to be justified. It's saying that in eternity past, God had a plan, and that plan was that believers in the Lord Jesus Christ were to be conformed to God's image. That's the game plan. But we can decide not to, not to participate if we wish. So in Acts 2.23 we read, that him, that is Christ, being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death. Before we get to the second part of it, I want to address this whole issue of the relationship between the determined purpose or intended plan of God and foreknowledge. What we have here is a construction in the Greek that is an article noun, uh, conjunction noun, article noun, chi noun. This is similar to what was identified by a Greek scholar in the late 18th century, late 18th 18th century by the name of Granville Sharp. Granville Sharp rule is a very famous rule, and it applies to certain kinds of nouns that when when both nouns are of this same kind and they're joined by a conjunction and and you only have one article at the beginning, like the the purpose and the knowledge of God. You don't have the with the second noun. You just have the purpose and knowledge. You have article, noun, chi, which is the Greek conjunction, and noun. That his rule was if you have certain kinds of nouns, then they were synonyms. They were both speaking about the same thing, but you were just using synonyms. Now, one of the problems that's been seen in the Granville-Sharp rule is that as further studies have uh, have been conducted, the Granville-Sharp rule only applies to personal, singular, non-proper nouns, personal nouns, not abstract nouns. So, There have been many times, let me give you another example because this will help make this passage clear. We're all familiar with Ephesians 4, 10, and 11, talking about the fact that Christ has given various gifts to the church, apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastor teachers. And for years, we and I still use it this way because I think it communicates, we communicate that last phrase by the English pastor hyphen teacher, as if it's the same thing. That idea came out of a misuse of the Granville Sharp rule. It's the same kind of construction. You have article noun, conjunction noun. You don't have an article before the second noun. But that doesn't fit the Granville Sharp rule because these are not personal, uh, personal nouns. An alternative solution has been proposed for passages like that, calling it a hendiadis. That's a word everybody here is used to. You use it at least once a week, right? Not even grammarians use it very often. In fact, half the grammars avoid the term and don't define it because it hasn't been defined well by grammarians. 
But a hendiadis is basically when you have this kind of construction and you know that these two nouns relate to each other in some way, the question is how do they relate to each other? And studies have shown that 75% of the time when these, these, this kind of construction occurs, um, well, and let me back up a minute, that when this construction occurs, these nouns are related, but one noun is related to the other noun in a dependent way. So one is primary, the other is dependent upon it. But in 75% of the occurrences of this construction, the first noun is dependent upon the second noun. Now what that means, let's go apply that to a familiar passage, the gift of pastor and teacher. What that means is not that they're equivalent pastor-teacher, which is what a what the misuse of the Granville Sharp rule indicated. But according to this use of a hendiadis, if it fits the predominant pattern, which is where the first noun is dependent upon the second, it should be understood as someone who pastors through teaching. Someone who pastors through teaching. Not someone who teaches through pastoring. Now, how would we resolve that? Well, you can't resolve that just on the basis of grammar or context. You have to resolve that by comparing other passages related to both teaching and related to being a pastor, and you have to think about it in terms of the meaning of these words. So the term pastor is is really a metaphor that is borrowed from agriculture, from a shepherd over sheep. Now, how does a shepherd function in relation to sheep? It's really a leadership metaphor. And it relates to, when we look at the scripture, it relates to guidance. It relates to protection. It relates to teaching. And it is really the teaching that provides the protection, the guidance, the direction, the information. Classic... uh, Example is when you go to um, when you go to John chapter twenty one, and John and Jesus is, has this little conversation with Peter, where he says, "Peter, do you love me?" And Peter says, "Yes, Lord, I love you." And then Jesus says, "Well, if you love me, feed my sheep." And then he says, "Peter, do you love me?" Peter's like, "Well, Lord, I, I just answered that question. You know I love you." And the Lord says, "Well, if you love me, feed my lambs." Then third time, Jesus says, Peter, do you love me? Now, Peter's really getting frustrated. He says, yes, you know, Lord, I love you. The Lord says, well, if you love me, feed my sheep. What you don't get in the English is that you have four sets of, of synonyms that are used here. You have different words for love. You have different words for feed. You have different words for, for sheep. That's three sets of synonyms. And, uh, love. Feed, sheep. Get three sets of synonyms. I said four. Three sets of synonyms. And what Jesus is emphasizing here are different aspects. Oh, you have different words for, 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 yeah, different words for sheep. You have adult sheep and you have lambs, baby sheep. You have different words for feeding and you have different words for love, agapao and phileo. Jesus is emphasizing something different, but the one thing you get out of that passage is that Peter, if he's going to be a leader in the church, his responsibility is to feed the sheep. He will feed different sheep, depending on their age, in different ways. But his goal is to feed the sheep. Now, how do you feed the sheep? You feed them by teaching them the Word of God. So you have pastoral models that have been developed uh, throughout the church age where you have pastors doing all kinds of different things but their primary role isn't feeding the sheep by teaching them the word. So when you look at passages like that, you can go back into the Old Testament when the Lord is uh, uh, rebuking the spiritual leaders of Israel for being false shepherds. They're false shepherds because they're teaching the wrong thing. They're teaching false doctrine. So you can build a theology here where you see that the primary metaphor of being a pastor or shepherd to God's flock has to do with teaching. So that means that pastor, as a 
general concept is a very broad concept, but teaching narrows it down and defines the metaphor and how that metaphor is to be used. So when we look at this broad context and we come to Ephesians uh, 4, 10, and 11, we see that past, if that's taken as a indiatus, it is pastoring through teaching. The teaching limits, defines the meaning of the word pastor. Well, we had the same kind of construction here in Acts 2.23. In Acts 2.23, if we look at this in the dominant way in which this construction is used, where the first noun is dependent on the second noun, then this would mean that God's, uh, that God's foreknowledge is prior to his intended purpose. So in Acts 2.23 we read that he was delivered by the intended purpose of God through his foreknowledge. That means foreknowledge is prior. But see, that's a judgment call in a certain sense because 25% of the uses could go the other way. So how do you determine that? Well, you go to more clear passages, which we just did, Romans 8.28 and 29 and... and um, and second, well, I went, there we go, First Peter, I went back too far. First Peter 1, 2, elect according to the foreknowledge of God. So First Peter 1, 2, all these, pa- these passages indicate from very clear passages in First Peter 1, 2 and Romans 8, 28 and 29 that uh, foreknowledge is prior, God's knowledge ahead of time of what will uh, take place. Now, we're going to see that an illustration of this in what comes up in Acts 2.24. Talking about Jesus, he goes on to say, whom God raised up. How about that? A resurrection passage on Tuesday night prior to Resurrection Day. And I've got five minutes to cover. But this is, this is one of the greatest, the greatest sign of John's gospel. John has seven signs plus the resurrection. God raised Jesus up from the dead. He was dead. There's no way you can sustain a claim to a swoon theory or some sort of conspiracy. Uh, you had the Roman guard that was placed upon the tomb. You had and a death penalty if they fall asleep. So they would not have fallen asleep. They would not have shirked their duty. Uh, if anything close to what is described in the scripture occurred when Jesus was on the cross, it is impossible that he could have crawled out of the tomb when it has that large of a stone in front of it and managed to crawl off and uh, into the brush and two or three days later be able to get up and walk around. That's just impossible uh, if you understand what happens in crucifixion. So Peter's point is, that in his life there were signs and wonders and miracles, the greatest of which comes after his death, which is when God raised him up, having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that he should be held by it. Now, here he makes an extraordinary claim that it was impossible for the Messiah, as prophesied in the Old Testament, to have stayed in the grave. His resurrection of the grave must be understood from messianic prophecy in the Old Testament. And so Peter then goes to Psalm 16 and quotes it. So from Acts 2.25 to 28, we have a quote from Psalm 16. For David says concerning him. So right off the bat here, Peter is saying David in Psalm 16 is talking about the Messiah. He's not talking about himself. Now, as I was doing my study on this, I looked around and I looked at the Bible Knowledge Commentary, and uh, the commentary on Psalms is written by Al Ross, who was one of my uh, Hebrew professors at Dallas. And Al uh, is usually pretty good, but what you see in the way he handles Psalm 16 is a trend that is even stronger today, and that is to uh, come along and say these passages in the Old Testament really weren't messianic. And he doesn't, he says, if you read, I know some people read the Bible Knowledge Commentary, if you read it on Psalm 16, Al Ross says David's talking about himself. But Al apparently didn't check 
Acts 2. Peter says he wasn't talking about himself. He was talking about the Messiah. It says, for David says concerning the Messiah. So in, <clears throat> in terms of the four ways in which we've looked at how the Old Testament uses the New Testament, it's clear that this is looking at Psalm 16 as a specific messianic prophecy, and this is messianic fulfillment. David says concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand that I might not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope. For you, that is talking to God the Father, you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to seek corruption. The Greek word for corruption there means to rot or to decompose. Nor will you allow your Holy One to, de- to seek corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make my, me full of joy in your presence. It's those last two verses that Peter is going to focus on. Psalm 16, verses 9 and 10, specifically verse 10. You will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. Now look at how he handles this. He says in his explanation, verse 29, Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried. David died. His body was placed in a grave, he is saying. His tomb is with us today, and his physical body went through decomposition and was in the grave. This, he could not be speaking of himself at all in Psalm 16. He says, therefore, being a prophet... This is clear from what uh, David said about himself and his own ministry in uh, passages such as Second uh, uh, Samuel 23, uh, verses 1 through 7. In, Peter, in uh, David's last words, he makes it clear that he understands that what he's writing about is about the Messiah in many places. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. And so he is emphasizing, that is, Peter is emphasizing that resurrection is clearly taught in the Old Testament. Now, since this is Passover, there's an element within the Seder meal that also foreshadows through a picture image resurrection. In the middle of the Passover meal, there is a ceremony that relates to the matzah. Three squares of matzah are taken, and they are placed inside a uh, matzotash, a bag that has three compartments. Now, in Jewish tradition, there's, they're not always sure what this represents. Some say it's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Some say it's the priests, the prophets, and the, the priests and the Levites and the prophets. Others have other suggestions. But they can't explain why is it that the middle one is broken, Now, Jesus took the middle one out when he's celebrating the Lord's table, and he took that middle one out and he broke it and said, this is my body which is given for you. He is saying that the significance of that middle matzah is his body which is going to die. And what's interesting is what happens after that is the larger piece of the matzah that it's broken, it's taken, and it's put in another bag called the afikomen, which is a Greek word that means that which comes after or dessert, and it's put inside the afikomen, and they play this little game with the kids, and the kids will go and hide it, and then later on at the end of the meal, they'll go and, and find it. But what that pictures is the, the, the breaking of the matzah. If that pictures the death of the Messiah, then the hiding of the afikomen pictures the burial, and then at the end, this is found and brought forth, and the matzah comes out, and this is a picture of resurrection. Now, when you look at a matzah, I should have brought one with me tonight. When you look at a matzah, it's, it's flat bread, and it's roasted, baked, and there are burn marks on it. Uh, where it's, where it's roasted, and, and it's pierced. And this fits the messianic prophecy of Isaiah 53 that I'm pierced for your transgressions, I'm wounded uh, for your iniquities. 
And so that middle matzah and the whole ceremony related to the matzotash is a, and the afikoman is a picture of other passages in the Old Testament that make it very clear that the Messiah would be raised from the dead. And so that's what Peter is quoting here from uh, Psalm 16, 8 to, 8 to 11, is he's saying, Men and brethren, don't you understand the prophecy that David gave was not about himself because his body went into the grave and is corrupt. It rotted. But he's saying here about the Messiah that he would not stay in the grave, that he, it was impossible for him to stay in the grave because God had promised that his body would not see corruption. And so then he will apply this to show that Jesus had to have been raised, was raised from the dead. And in verse 33, it says, Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. Now see how he's brought all this back to the promise of the Holy Spirit, which has just been poured out upon them. He said he received at, at when Jesus is glorified and ascended to heaven, seated at the right hand of the Father, he receives from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, which he, that is Jesus, then pours out upon the church, and that's what you now see. So Peter ties these Old Testament prophecies together, showing that Jesus fulfilled them as the Messiah. He fulfills them in his resurrection, and as a result of that, he is exalted to the Father, and he pours out God the Holy Spirit. From that, he will go into uh, another famous uh, Messianic quote in the Old Testament from Psalm 110, beginning in verse 34, and I'll come back and we'll begin there next time. Let's bow our heads together and close in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things this evening to be able to be reminded of the fact that Jesus didn't happen. He just didn't come along and claim to to be the Messiah like every other uh, false Messiah at that time, but that he actually fulfilled in his life the credentials that were foretold through thousands of years of what the Messiah would do and so that he could be identified by these Old Testament prophecies, and that in his death he conquered death and was raised from the dead at the resurrection, just as it was foretold in the Old Testament. His life and his death and his resurrection fit the pattern, fulfilled the types, the images, and the specific revelation given in the Old Testament. And so, Father, we are thankful that we can see how all of Scripture fits together, reinforces itself, the Old Testament and the New, so that we can have confidence that this is your word and Jesus is who he claimed to be. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.